This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. Today you'll hear from Kevin Carr, author of the new book, Musician's Guide to Marketing, Why Your Band Needs a Brand. Thinking about a band name in 2022 and 2023 and beyond means you have to also think about things like SEO, uh, search engine optimization. Also, you'll get an update on the growth of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Mid-Central Coast from CEO Michael Boyer. We also do after-school tutoring. We call it Power Hour. So at every one of our clubs, we make sure that our kids get their homework done. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, October 17th, 2022. I'm Carol Tangeman. KCBX contributor Brian Reynolds speaks with author Kevin Carr about his book, Musician's Guide to Marketing, Why Your Band Needs a Brand. Welcome, Kevin. Hey, thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So I grew up here in the Central Coast. I uh, was uh, raised in Oceano, a proud member of the Oceano community. Did move away for a little while. Went to uh, you know a few different places around the country. After high school, I went down to L.A. and attended the Musicians Institute of Hollywood, uh, did their music business program and worked down there for a little bit. Decided to go forward with my college career and ended up in North Idaho, of all places, and experienced some winter. I transferred into Rochester, New York, and experienced a bunch more winter, and then finished my master's at uh, Gonzaga University. So after all that traveling around, of course, always had my eyes set on a uh, coming back to the Central Coast, because how can you leave it forever, right? So finally made my way back about last year and happened, of course, to release this book earlier this year and uh, really happy to be promoting it now. Uh, one of the things we talked about earlier uh, was how the whole landscape of music, how it's produced, consumed, distributed, has changed. For example, if you were an actor or a musician prior to, say, the 1970s or 80s, uh, you were often um, dominated by a big studio or a big record label. Dominated meaning they told you what to do and when to do it, how much you could afford and so forth. But they also promoted your product. They distributed your product. Now um, that's a, a very different situation. What would you say the top two or three characteristics uh, of today's music scene are for budding musicians versus, say, five or ten years ago? Oh, well, and it's changed even in the last one or two or three years. It's constantly changing. That's the first thing I think that is important for any musician or artist or creative getting into this uh, sort of self-promotion space is realizing that, that digital marketing is an ecosystem that is always evolving. So you just kind of have to grab onto the train, and once you're on the train, you can kind of get your bearings and, and figure out what you want to do. Yeah, the first thing is to understand it's always evolving. The second is is that there really isn't much of a traditional system anymore. I mean, there certainly exist record labels and management firms and all those things of the traditional world are still there. But ultimately, that path of, gosh, I need to create the perfect demo to show to the perfect A&R person to get me on the perfect tour, to get me that label, to get on the magazine cover, it's just sort of outdated. And while that certainly exists for some, you know, very, very few a percentage of musicians. It's just not the, the world we live in anymore. It's also wishful thinking. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I write about that in the book. I write about the, the American Idol ideology of, you know, just wishful thinking, assuming you're going to get discovered, that that viral hit is going to get me over the mountain and I'm going to have a giant fan base overnight. 
that uh, wishful thinking that I try to I write about and address right away. I say, this is not the book for you if that's your plan. This book is for people who have ambition to succeed and need a little help on identifying that map to get there. Uh, artists have a reputation for being uh, dancing to a different drummer and maybe being very gifted on the artistic talent side, but not so much as a business person. It seems to me that when you can combine the artistic flair with uh, science, if you will, of, as you say, branding and promotion and marketing, all those things, then, then that's really something. Uh, why don't you walk us through your book a little bit? Tell us about an SEO. Oh, sure. Yeah. So that first chapter is really all about branding and the basics of branding, you know, the myth of branding, because digital marketers will argue all day long what a brand is. But I basically say, look, let's simplify it. Your brand is your business. Your business is your brand. Here are the the major components to your brand and what you should be thinking about as you're getting your business or your brand or your your art, your profile, your your artist uh, project off the ground. And that's going to be things like the band name and Thinking about a band name in 2022 and 2023 and beyond means you have to also think about things like SEO, uh, search engine optimization. Now, that is like bread and butter topic for digital marketers, but a lot of musicians, they get into it and they might not think about SEO. And for those that don't know, SEO or search engine optimization just basically means you're naming things that can be easily found on the internet. This goes beyond band names, by the way. This goes for uh, title tracks, too. I didn't necessarily write about this in the book, but... A lot of musicians now are purposefully uh, naming their songs certain things just so they could be found easily when people are searching on Spotify. Uh, I was just listening to the Pixies on the way up here, their new album. They have a song called Haunted House, you know, released in October. I mean, that's not by accident. People are searching for these types of songs during this month. That's kind of that intentionality that I think goes into what a digital marketing program. So Keyword searching, a librarian would call that. Mm -hmm. I think it's important for people to recognize that the information flow that that, uh, people have to cope with every day is more like a tidal wave than it is a manageable stream. The other is there's a lot of crapola on the internet, uh, fake stuff, wrong stuff, uh, superfluous stuff, and so forth. And that makes, I think, the the job even harder for anyone to get noticed. What about the uh, likes and and, uh, content? Oh, yeah. I found that fascinating. Yeah, content creation. uh, That's a big part of a digital strategy. That's, you know, in simple language, that's basically creating content for your audience to consume. That's pushing out social media posts. It's pushing out emails. It's just delivering a message to your audience. I go in depth into the different strategies there because it's really easy to launch a social media profile. And it's a lot harder to see it through with consistency every day, every week, to have a plan to push out content to your audience. The last thing you want is to sign up for uh, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and then go a, a month but without posting anything. And it's not that you need to post every day. It's really just about creating a schedule, creating a content calendar, creating expectations for yourself, setting a uh, what is the best level of quality I can push out consistently. So it's just really uh, identifying that key planning part to just make you not feel lost once you have this all in front of you. I think it's also true that the different social media platforms are all a little different. You know, uh, Twitter has a character limit, and it's kind of like a jungle, and you need to be an explorer. Put on your pith helmet and go out there. Audiences are fragmented. There was this, I'd say about five to ten years ago, there was this business push, a business marketing push of make sure you're consistent on every channel everywhere on the internet. 
And then that's rapidly evolved to now like, no, no, no. You know, your TikTok audience is different than your Twitter audience, different than your Instagram audience. And you need to find a way to be authentic with them on every channel. And audiences are fragmented, and that's good. I know that for me, this is one of the bad things about the internet, but it's good you know, for pro- producers and owners of search engines and, and other content uh, providers, but they want to aggregate people with similar tastes so they can hit them with the same advertising and they'll buy the similar products. It's a, it's a matter, I mean, people might be more fragmented than ever, but uh, businesses that want to sell stuff on the internet want groups that have similar tastes. Does that actually play out to the benefit of musicians or how could it, how could that work? Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually why I talk about in the next chapter, if you will, the, the advertising and how to take advantage of that. Facebook is probably the premier advertising platform for everyone because you don't really need a big budget to get started. You can start with $5 and uh, you can target people who are interested in your product or people that look like those people. Um, The main thing that I talk about, though, in that chapter, or one of the main things I talk about is being careful because like anything, you can throw a lot of money away with no plan in place. And also, these, these technology companies are not your friend. That's a big theme of my book. Google, Facebook, Instagram, we're used to associating the word friend with these social media platforms. And so we have this like association that they're like helping the world, but really- Or at least benign. Yes, but they are, they're not your friend. And that's the first thing to realize. They'll take your money and they don't care if you're successful with your art project. So I write a lot about confronting that reality and going, okay, so this is a fair trade. You know, I'm going to give them money. They're going to give me something back. How do I make sure I get the most bang for my buck? And that's uh, that's what I talk a lot about in that book. I'd like to remind everyone, I am Brian Reynolds for Issues and Ideas on KCBX, public radio for the Central Coast. Today we're joined by musician and author Kevin Carr. He recently wrote The Musician's Guide to Digital Marketing, Why Your Band Needs a Brand. And you can find out more about Kevin and about the book at his website, kvncrr.com. Have you gotten feedback uh, on this from anybody or anybody used this stuff yet? Yeah, yeah. I've gotten some really great feedback. What's funny is that this isn't a book designed for major audiences. You know, this is actually, speaking of segmenting audiences and fragmenting audiences, this is a book designed for maybe one half a percent of the population, you know. So not a book to fly off the digital shelves, but it's it's really created for a segment of people that I associate myself with, which is musicians with ambition. So feedback has been good. I think people are surprised by how into the weeds I get, um, you know, in, in, especially in the, in the advertising campaigns and conversion section. I mean, I'm going for it, and I'm giving uh, really, really in-depth advice. And I'm also providing templates along the way, too. There's clickable links in the book with Google Sheets templates that I've created. And all this is designed to just say, look, I want to help you succeed, and here are step-by-step ways to do that. You know, there weren't a lot of books out there that offered that in the weeds perspective because people, authors, of course, want to sell books and they, they need to kind of keep it broad for a larger audience. I'm not as concerned about that. I really want to help people. I want to, want to help them get in the weeds and cut through them. And am I understanding correctly, the book is actually um, you know, only going to be available in a digital format? Digital only. I think there's a saying that the gods laugh whenever a digital marketer prints a book. You know, everything changes so quickly. I wanted to keep it digital. I wanted to be able to update it right. and uh, revise it at will. So It, it seems to me, uh, I remember, of course, being a librarian in my career, it was quite a big deal if your book made it to a second edition or a third edition, and, and not just for your bank account or your fame, 
But uh, to have the edits done right and to be able to afford to distribute the second and third editions, et cetera. But online, I think that's one of the great advantages. It's easily updated. Absolutely. Um, and it's a digital marketing book. Sure. I want it to be available online for people to consume and uh, you know, meet, meet them where they're at. I wonder, a lot of musicians, maybe all musicians, start out local, singing at the local venues. And if they hit it big, they, I guess, would go to L.A. or Nashville, at least in the old days, maybe New York. Is this going to help the local music scene, and if so, how? Oh, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, my, my heart is in local music. You know, I, I, was, uh, I started a business when I was 16 years old promoting local music. Uh, I did local concerts down in South County. Um, and so my heart is always with local musicians. Whenever I go to a concert, I always like going early, seeing the opening acts. Yeah, this is designed for, for them. This is designed for people who are getting started, who want to get over the hump, want to uh, increase their audience in a real, both natural but in intentional way. Has there been any change yet? I don't know. I think uh, I'm planting some seeds and be very curious to see where it, where have, it grows. This is sort of a side issue, but what about in a community like ours, diverse though it may be, are there good places, uh, affordable and, and technically excellent places to record, or do they have to leave town for that? Oh, most people are recording in their bedroom. You know, I have a place at my house I record. I would say that the pandemic has probably accelerated home recording, but it was already accelerating. You know, tools like GarageBand come preloaded on every Apple computer, and then it's not a whole lot more to upgrade to Logic. And then from there, it gets to a conversation of can you afford better microphones and better equipment you build up and up from there. But a lot of music is made indoors in people's houses now. They don't need to go anywhere. Now, you get to a certain point where, of course, you want to go to a studio. That's a great goal to have because uh, it's there's no better experience than bringing a band into a studio, in my opinion. I'm assuming, and a bit of a side issue, that the musicians need to get together in one spot uh, because of the internet lag issues, and it's hard to um, be together synchronously in, you know, in real time, but in separate locations because of some of those technical issues. Is that accurate? That's accurate, but you know, it's not, you don't necessarily need to play uh, live together. I have a band. We are in three different states, and what we do is we send each other tracks. Tra tracks. And then I'll get a drum track back and a bass track back, and, you know, and then you put it all together. You lose a little bit of that magic of being in the room together, mm -hmm. but that's what a local band is for. Uh, there's just different flavors and different options for everyone, but certainly internet lag is, a, is an issue for anything live, absolutely. I was mentioning, I don't know if a lot of people know about this, but uh, belonging to a uh, competitive choir, as I do, there is a software out there called Jack Trip, J-A-C-K-T-R-I-P, that Stanford developed that largely eliminates the lag, and it's about 300 bucks, I think, for a, a setup. But thing is, if you're going to use that kind of software, your partner in another location has to have the same software, so mm -hmm. it's not uh, necessarily straightforward. I want to get a little bit philosophical to express my thought that the arts are super important in humanity's survival, psychic and uh, even physical survival. But I think music is especially unique within the rest of the arts. You can't take a painting or a sculpture with you, but you can take a digital sound file with you uh, to either listen to or perform. It seems to me that the musicians of the world almost have an obligation not just to make a living, but to help us stay sane. I don't think that's too strong of a statement, <laughs> that the music helps us cope. And the more, the merrier, especially all kinds of music, because everyone has different tastes. Yeah, absolutely. I wrote this book because music is just so incredibly important to me. It was my the way I stayed sane 
in a crazy upbringing and throughout high school when everybody has a crazy high school experience. But music has always been my, my rock. But I will admit that uh, I think the importance of music on the society has lessened. I think you see music becoming less of the force it was and now just another component of this entertainment world we live in where music is now competing with movies and nonstop TV and nonstop news cycles. And now music doesn't just compete with music, it competes with everything for attention. But that doesn't mean it's not timeless. And that's what's important about, about good music is that, and most music, of course, not just what I call good, but music is timeless and it carries with us uh, through every age. And, and that's why it's important. That's why art's important. I grew up, I don't know if people today, uh, if I say these words, uh, would even know what I'm talking about, but top 40, you know, radio stations that focus just on the, whether it's country or rock or anything else, but it was it tended to be um, bland, probably designed for the broadest possible market. So it seems to me that the potential for musicians, uh, independent artists, if you will, to put out there a much broader array of types of music is... Um, not only desirable, but essential. This is important. It's like helping maybe society cope. So I, I sort of see this as this book and what you're doing as almost a spiritual quest. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It certainly seems spiritual just trying to finish it. So uh, as we wrap up now, uh, what would be the last one or two thoughts you'd like to leave with? Like I said, this book was designed for a very specific audience, but I do think I do think a lot of people could benefit it. Any sort of creative, any any artist, or any small business owner, honestly, can benefit from this book. Um, this wasn't designed in a way for me to make money. This was designed for me to help people. So um, I encourage people to reach out and let me know if there's anyone that needs a copy. I'd be happy to give them a copy, forward them a copy. Um, also, I am uh, teaching a class through Cuesta College Community Programs. And uh, we're doing a, it's about a four-week course, and we go through each chapter in depth. So if you're looking for a way to potentially dive in deeper than just reading the book, that is available. Excellent. This is Brian Reynolds for Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio over the Central Coast. Today we were joined by Kevin Carr, musician and author of a new book, The Musician's Guide to Digital Marketing, Why Your Band Needs a Brand. And you can find out more about Kevin and the book and what he's up to at his website, kvncrr.com. Thank you, Kevin. Hey, thanks for having me. This is Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Up next, Dr. Consuelo Mukes speaks with Michael Boyer of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Mid-Central Coast. Michael, welcome to the Nonprofit Story. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tell us about the mission and just a little bit of history about the Boys and Girls Club here in the Mid-Central Coast. Our mission is to enable all young people, especially those who need us most, to realize their full potential as productive, caring, and responsible citizens. And really what that comes down to is we focus on childhood development. So... We don't just babysit kids after school. Mm-hmm. We put them through 12-week programs with a formulaic evidence-based programming. Mm-hmm. We also do after-school tutoring. We call it Power Hour. So at every one of our clubs, we make sure that our kids get their homework done mm-hmm. before we start our programming. And you have how many clubs? We have 22 clubs. Oh, my. I'm behind. I thought you had about 14, 15. So this year we Mm -hmm. opened 10 new clubs. So that means there's a need. 
There's a significant need. I'm sorry to say that we have wait lists at almost every one of our clubs. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of our, um, I would say, one of our visionary elements is mm -hmm. to really fight the notion of wait lists, mm -hmm. right? So let's talk about that a little bit and see why we have a wait list and is there anything the community can help with? I think the big reason we have wait lists come down to, number one, the need of the community. Mm -hmm. Number two, the success of the program, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you have a solid program that has worked for years and years and years, people hear about it. Mm -hmm. um, but on an ongoing basis, even moving into new communities, we have a huge problem in coverage for parents who have to work. Mm -hmm. and so, What age group do you work with? We work with really TK up to 18. The majority of our just our regular drop-in after-school programming is first grade through 12th grade. Mm -hmm. okay? um, but in many of our locations, we also handle uh, during the day TK and kindergarten. Okay, so, so you're there during the day as well as yeah. So if there's a, a school that has a half day TK or Kinder program, mm -hmm. many times we will take those kids the their, the other half of the day. Mm -hmm. So if the kid if the if the young kids are at school from say eight eight a.m. to eleven thirty, then we'll take them in the afternoon mm -hmm. and vice versa, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So we do a, quite a bit of that. Also. So that helps the parents mm -hmm. who have to work or something. And exactly. then you, they have supervised attention to their children through the Boys and Girls Club. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And typically on our first grade through eighth grade, we have a 20, 20 to 1 ratio that we stay under. And then all of our TK and kinder are at 10 to 1. Is that one volunteer person or one staff person? No, just staff people. Mm -hmm. Typically, we have volunteer people that add to that ratio, but we really don't count that mm -hmm. on ratio. But technically speaking, it is. So where are the clubs located? From uh, Orchid to Paso Robles. Mm -hmm. so we have clubs in Paso Robles, Shandon, Creston, Atascadero, San Luis Obispo. There's clubs in five cities. We're opening a teen center in Morro Bay. And then we have clubs throughout the Santa Maria Valley also. So when you're saying that you do have students who are on the wait list, mm -hmm. and they're coming from these particular areas, mm -hmm. what would help get them off of a wait list? It's really staffing. So mm -hmm. we're looking for people who are passionate about helping kids. Mm -hmm. And we're always hiring. Okay. okay. So... Um, Right now in San Luis Obispo County, we have 10 open positions wow. working directly with kids. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that makes it a little bit more difficult to uh, in the hiring process is we just have a, because of the security of working with kids, we have uh, some significant safety procedures that we go through in our hiring process. So it takes a little longer than other people. Mm -hmm. So say somebody's interviewing in a number of places, they might get an offer letter sooner at other places just because we have to take them through very specific safety protocols. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a really positive, empowering work environment. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, it's a great place to work. Our team members really enjoy the, the culture of the organization. Yeah, I saw that on your website, you put a lot of emphasis on safety. We do. For the children, and mm -hmm. I would think that you might have to be um, people that report anything 
that yeah, we are mandated reporters mandated. for mm-hmm. sure yeah and what about training also yeah so there's a significant amount of training even before you can start working with kids. Mm-hmm. So that's really a full week of, of specific training just to be able to work with kids. But then it really comes down to significant training on an ongoing basis because mm-hmm. we want people to be experts in the programs that they're leading. And so they have to work with uh, experienced uh, youth development professionals who have experience in those programs and then train on that program certify on that program, and then be able to uh, teach that program. So what kind of programs are there? We have about 400 programs. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Everything from working with teenagers, making sure that they realize the changes within themselves and how they can transition from that primary school through teenage years and so on. We have uh, STEM programming We have arts and crafts programming. We have lots of reading, photography, and all of these programs are 12-week programs. Mm -hmm. And they really focus in helping the kids get some of the skill sets and some of the knowledge that they are really lacking. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe if they're a kid that doesn't have resources at home or it's a, a... a more difficult situation for them. We just uh, want to make sure that they're getting the capability of, of having the programs that will help them. Mm-hmm. Each student really can choose, you know, what type of programming they m- might want to be in. And, and so if we're doing a sports program at one afternoon, they might want to do that. And the next afternoon, they might want to do an arts and crafts program, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of variety to meet the needs for sure. of what's out there. And for if sure. you are just joining us, I am speaking with Michael Boyer. He is the CEO of the Boys and Girls Club of Mid-Central Coast. And this is the nonprofit story. I'm your host, Dr. Consuela Mukes. Michael, it sounds that you um, are really touching special needs with children as far as both their emotional and uh, educational and physical safety and growth. Mm -hmm. So I see where you might need a lot more people to help to come in. Hey, yeah, we're always looking for volunteers, mentors to come into our volunteer process. We actually have an upcoming event called Back a Youth Mm -hmm. up in Paso Robles. Essentially, you mentor uh, a child for a night. And you can go to our website at uh, centralcoastkids.org to register. Um, Mm -hmm. Currently, we have 30 kids that have signed up as mentees, Mm -hmm. and now we're looking for mentors. We have quite a few uh, signed up, but there's always uh, uh, space for that. So what is Back a Youth? What would a person do? Essentially, what you're doing is just spending Mm -hmm. a a couple hours Mm -hmm. with the kids, going through some of the programming that they go through every day. You're having dinner with them. Mm -hmm. You're helping them through that time period. Essentially, like you would be a volunteer at the club for those couple of hours. But if you came and volunteered at the club during the day, that's what you would be doing. Mm -hmm. So it's really like a day in the life of of being a club kid at the Mm -hmm. Boys and Girls Club. Well, so what is the responsibility of someone if they do become a volunteer? Mm -hmm. So we have lots of volunteer opportunities, right? Mm -hmm. So we have, you know, everything from board level, committee level, and then volunteering directly with the kids. So volunteering directly with the kids, you get to participate in programming. Mm -hmm. You get to participate in mentoring. And some mentoring might be 
you come and help uh, with homework. You know, and we have power hour, but even to some extent, the older kids have longer than one hour that they need to work on their homework. So mm-hmm. we have a lot. We have quite a few um, professionals who help kids with their homework for sure. Do people stay volunteering for a period of time? Yeah, I would say that we have lots of people that have volunteered for years and years. I mean, like the, it's just a staple thing that mm-hmm. they do it a few times a month or even a few times a week. Mm-hmm. But um, we don't have any requirements on that. Um, we do have some significant safety uh, and security things that happen up front. So mm-hmm. all volunteers, including coaches in our sports leagues, get double background checked. Um, as well as they have to go through an application process. Mm-hmm. So you've been with them for a while. Mm-hmm. What are some wins that you've seen? Thank you. Yeah. So I've. So it's actually uh, two years on October 25th. It'll be my second anniversary on October 25th. Mm-hmm. When I started the club, we had 10 locations, 10 wow. clubs. Really, some of the big wins from an organizational standpoint, we really started focusing on strategic vision, strategic planning, and alignment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Along with that, a lot of community awareness. We wanted Mm -hmm. to make sure people realized and knew what we were doing out in the community. And then we also want to make sure that our CQI, or our, our continual quality improvement processes, were very much in the front of what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And so with really those three things, we've seen significant um, transformation across the organization. Mm -hmm. And that includes growth, but it really includes how do we help serve more kids? And it's not just us serving kids. We want the YMCA to serve more kids. We want Mm -hmm. Nipomo Recreation to serve more kids. We want other boys and girls clubs to serve more kids. There's a, a large number of families in our region here that need that help, that have two-income families with kids just coming home mm-hmm. from school. Hmm. And they might not necessarily be in the, in the best uh, situations. Well, you've certainly grown. I mean, oh, yeah. that's very significant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we don't really see that ending. You know, there's lots of opportunity. You know, San Luis Coastal, we've been working great with San Luis Coastal at our Laguna Middle School Club. Mm-hmm. I believe that that relationship will be, it will just continue to grow, mm-hmm. uh, as well as some of our North County relationships. So what does it take for a child to qualify or a family to qualify to be served? That's a great question. We don't turn anyone away, mm-hmm. right? That's so, a great answer. Right. There's just, if that's it. I mm-hmm. mean, you come, you register, and um, and really, for $50 a year, you can have unlimited after-school programming. Great. So it's $50 for the family? $50 per, per, per kid, mm-hmm. but... Um, we have financial assistance at all levels. That's wonderful. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's uh, per child for the whole year to get this kind of attention yep. is mm-hmm. really wonderful. So how would the community be able to assist the Boys and Girls Club, or do you need community help? That's a great question, yeah. I mean, we have probably half of our funding comes from the community, mm-hmm. and whether that is you know, small foundations, whether it's family offices, whether it's individual donations, uh, event registrations, auctioned. 
in 2022 this year, we'll have over 20 events in the region that we do. And, and some of those are donor-based social activities. Mm-hmm. They're community-based, you know, just introducing us to specific communities. Um, but it really comes down to is we want to make sure that people really understand how we can partner with them. And and it's not just donations. We want volunteers. Mm-hmm. Volunteers help us tr- uh, tremendously. We have right now 20 board members. Oh. And we're always looking for, for interested uh, individuals who have a passion for child development at a board level, as well as committees. We have lots of community members, not just board members on our committees, mm-hmm. too. So, wow. So you mm-hmm. have a lot of opportunities for people to help the, oh, for sure. the students and the children in our area. Right. I noticed on your uh, website that you even had a vaccine clinic for youth. Oh, yeah. We've done a number of vaccine clinics. Mm-hmm. Um In Santa Maria Valley, as well as San Luis Obispo, Mm -hmm. we partnered with County Public Health and had vaccine clinics numerous times at our Flamson Club. Um, We are just in the middle of building our Tom Moss Club up Mm -hmm. in um, Paso Robles, so it wasn't quite complete when we're still doing public vaccinations. But Mm -hmm. it was one of those things where we wanted to provide access, and many families have trusted us for years and years mm-hmm. and coming to our location with that trust already built in helped a lot. So I think you do have a couple of events that maybe the community could engage in and help you with. Oh, for sure. So we have two events coming up right now. Mm-hmm. One of them is, I just I mentioned it earlier, Back of Youth Night. The date for Back of Youth is October 27th, and that's just that's a mentorship program. You can go to our website at centralcoastkids.org and go to the events section, and you can just sign up right there on the Back of Youth. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is our Crush It Golf Tournament, which is on November 7th, mm-hmm. and that's at Hunter Ranch, and you can go to our website also to register for that golf tournament. That's going to be a biggie, I bet. It is. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Seems like you have another community event, too, a Giving Tuesday event. We really use that as a thanking our staff, thanking our constituents, and thanking our board. I give this, the State of the Club address at that event. We have some social activities and uh, tours of the club. You get to see what kids are doing because we have the programs running during that event so Mm -hmm. people can see what kids are doing. This year we're going to be having it at our Tom Moss Clubhouse in Paso Robles. That's a new one, isn't it? It's a brand new one. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so (laughs) the Paso Robles community has been planning this uh, new clubhouse right to the south of Georgia Bound Elementary Mm -hmm. School for the last six or seven years. Wow. Right. In 2020, right before I started working at the, at the Boys and Girls Club, Tom and Kathleen Moss donated the land and did a bunch of work to prepare that plot. And then in April of 2021, we broke ground there. Right? It took us about 13 months to, to build and we occupied it in May of 2022, so just this last May. And then we had summer programs at that club all summer. Now we have a wait list there. 
Oh wow! Right, and so the need is there. Yeah, the need the need is there. I mean, before at Flamson, we mm-hmm. could take eighty kids. Flamson is still open, mm-hmm. and now we have Tom Moss that can take about two hundred kids. That's amazing. Right, and so definitely, it's a great facility. It's about nine thousand square feet, and it has everything our kids need for mm-hmm. sure. So, what people need to do is come to your Giving Tuesday event mm-hmm. and see it, yeah. and help the Boys and Girls Club. For sure. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Michael Boyer. He is the CEO of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Mid-Central Coast. And this is The Nonprofit Story. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. The Diablo Canyon Nuclear Power Plant sits on land that once belonged to a local indigenous tribe. That land is currently owned by PG&E. But in August, when the state legislature was debating whether to extend the life of the power plant, the tribe sent Governor Gavin Newsom and President Biden a letter asking for the property to be returned to them as their ancestral land, which sits on the coast between Montaña de Oro and Point San Luis. KCBX's Gabriela Fernandez reports on the tribe's ongoing efforts to reclaim the land. The Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant was scheduled to decommission in 2025, but on September 2nd, Governor Newsom signed the bill SB 846, which will likely extend the plant's operation until 2030. Throughout the conversation about the possible decommissioning of the plant, the Yaktitu Titu, Yaktilhini Northern Shumash tribe, also known as the YTT, say they didn't have enough of a voice in the process, and that lack of say prolongs the colonization of their land. We had to make sure we did all we could that decision makers at the highest level understood who we are where we're from, and what we want. That's Mona Olivas-Tucker, the chairman of the YTT who speaks for the tribe. She says the YTT have no stance on whether or not Diablo Canyon is decommissioned. What she and her tribe want is to get their land back. She says the Pecho Coast is full of cultural and natural resources with a rich ecosystem, filled with a variety of species. The YTT used the land as a ceremonial site for thousands of years. In the simplest of terms, we want our land back. Uh, This is land that was stolen from us in the 1700s. There was no agreement, no compensation, no consideration. Tucker says before the recent debate over decommissioning, she and the tribe were positioning themselves to buy the land. But then things changed in Sacramento. Diablo Lands, for a few years, was going to be considered excess property owned by PG&E and one of their subsidiaries. And the tribe, our tribe, Yaktichu Ticha Yaktahini, have been positioning ourselves to be a buyer for that property. But things changed in Sacramento. She says the tribe then began writing a resolution asking the state to return their land. They sent a letter to both Governor Newsom and President Biden. Scott Lathrop, the president of the YTT's nonprofit organization, says there was no response from the Biden administration. But Governor Newsom did reach out to the YTT before signing SB 846. To our surprise, we actually were contacted, like within 72 hours, somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, asking to meet with our group. And so we were really encouraged because we felt, well, it looks like we're going to get a place at the table, if you will. 
Lathrop says once the governor's office contacted the tribe, they began having Zoom meetings with the governor's representatives. Lathrop thinks the YTT played a big part in getting some native input into the new bill. But he says it still didn't turn out exactly as he had hoped. SB 846 developed a land conservation and economic development plan, which provides funding for what the state calls the environmental enhancements and access of Diablo Canyon land and local economic development. Lathrop says while conservation and economic development are good things, the new language is still a concern because their tribe was not given a say in that aspect of the bill. Without our group being the major player in that, uh, we kind of feel that uh, maybe things aren't quite changing the way we'd like to see change happen on the Pecho Coast. Lathrop says while he doesn't speak for the tribe, Tucker does. He'd personally like to see the power plant keep operating. He says they fully understand the issue of local economics, and they need to be the main decision makers in the process. It's time to really look at the land out there and try to get into the decolonization mode, which essentially means that our tribal group or the tribe is in the primary position on deciding what happens with that land. Tucker agrees. She says the tribe is perfectly capable of making decisions about their homeland. Here we are a few hundred years later, and it's starting to feel like the same thing all over again. And we can't let that happen. PG&E still has to go through the federal relicensing process to keep the power plant running until 2030. For KCBX News, I'm Gabriela Fernandez. And finally, on issues and ideas, KCBX contributor Tom Wilmer visits with Ford Roosevelt, FDR's grandson, aboard the presidential yacht USS Potomac. It's in the harbor in Oakland. The USS Potomac served as President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's floating White House from 1936 until his death in 1945. How the USS Potomac came to reside in Oakland, California is a fascinating journey. Following the death of FDR, spent a 10-year stint as a Coast Guard patrol boat, followed by service as a Caribbean ferry, Elvis Presley's private yacht, and a stint as a drug smuggler that ultimately led to its sinking while tied up on Treasure Island in the San Francisco Bay. The Oakland Port Authority purchased the derelict USS Potomac and spent more than 14 years and $6 million painstakingly restoring Roosevelt's presidential yacht. Today, the vessel is a registered National Historic Landmark. It's permanently berthed at Oakland's Jack London Square and maintained by the Potomac Association. Come along and join Ford Roosevelt aboard USS Potomac. Here we are at Jack London Square on yep. the waterfront, on board one of the most legendary 
under-the-surface vessels in America. No question about that. This was FDR's presidential yacht. It was what he called his floating White House. Mm -hmm. I think a good way to describe it, I heard someone say recently, was it was his Camp David. There's a quote, and I'll I'll try to play it again for you when we go in the radio room. I just found it. It's on a recorder in there, and he talks about being in the salon, and he did at least one, maybe three, of his fireside chats from the ship. And he would often say, I'm in the little room on the little Potomac. We're sailing down off the coast of Florida, getting a little break from the White House. And he would be very candid about it. I love it. And the family connection is that your name is Ford Roosevelt. Correct. And FDR was your grandfather. Was my grandfather. Eleanor was my grandmother. That's so cool. Um, I mean, it is wonderful. And I, I did not know FDR. I was born after he passed away, but I knew Eleanor. And Eleanor was not a fan of the ship. Oh, really? she, she had a pretty scary episode when she was a young girl. She was on a cruise liner going across the Atlantic. It wouldn't have been with her mother. It was with her grandmother. And the ship hit something and was in danger of sinking. And they would get the women and children off first, whatever it is they said then. And so they would start lowering people over the side. And Eleanor was held out over the side above the lifeboat and was sort of dropped into the waiting arms of the crew. But it really scared her completely. So she decided then, I'm not doing any more cruising. But she came on this ship more than a few times to help FDR. And there's the legend and lore about FDR and why he specced Mm. this ship was because he had a mortal fear of fire. He did. And so this is a steel-hulled vessel. It was originally a Coast Guard? It was a Coast Guard cutter. Mm -hmm. And the ship that he could have taken was wood. And he, you're right, he had a mortal fear of being caught in a fire because he was an invalid. He was in a wheelchair for most of his adult life. Mm-hmm. And he decided that wouldn't work, so he scouted around, and they found this ship with the Coast Guard, and he took it over, essentially, to be the floating White House. And pretty much as you can see it now, it's in pretty much the same condition it was the last time he was on it. And there were a lot of archival research to yes. recreate the salon and whatnot. There was be, a lot, yeah, because yeah. c- as we've already talked about, it was underwater. So all the furniture that you see in the, in the ship now, including the crew quarters below deck, All of those have been recreated and put on here from people who built the ship back from its being underwater. All the chairs where we're sitting, the fantail where we're sitting, all of this is a recreation of what it was like when he was the president and on the ship. As exact as possible. As exact as possible. And they've used archival pictures, video, and movies that were taken on the ship, Mm -hmm. and they've been as true to the original decor as they could. I've been on this vessel before years ago, went out on a cruise, and you're probably right there with me. You can feel... Oh, his yes. spirit palpably on this vessel. You can. I don't know if we would go on a cruise and play his voice over the loudspeaker. <laughs> we certainly could. Yeah. It might be a little bit too much for me even. Yeah. But, you know, I think that you have the opportunity to come on this ship if you, when you visit it. If you do, whether you're at the dockside or you go out on a cruise, it's very different than anything around here. There's a ferry boat, which is great. There's a cruise ships around here. But when you're on this ship and you're hearing the narration of what you're looking at, you know you're seeing something different and feeling something different. It really is special that way. And this is open to the public for cruises on the, the public, bay. Yes, it is. You go under the, the Bay Bridge. We go and, under the Bay Bridge. Yeah. We go under the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, I remember. I, that's where I went. Did you go under the Golden the way, Gate Bridge? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. That was so cool. I went with my wife and some friends on the July 4th evening cruise, and we left the dock at, I think, 7.30, due to come back around 10.30. And it was as foggy as you can imagine. When we went under the Bay Bridge, it fogged up completely. You couldn't see anything. Wow. And we got out to the Golden Gate Bridge, you did not know you were there until you were right under it and the foghorn blew and you looked up 
and you saw you, oh my God, under the Golden Gate Bridge. So we went out maybe 100 yards and came about and came back into the bay and finally saw fireworks when we got back to the Bay Bridge and going under the Bay Bridge, you can see all the illegal fireworks on Alameda Island, which was a lot of fun. But we had it was a good cruise. So we're post-COVID world now, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. And you're reinventing yourself. You're basically doing a cold start from having been shut down for yep. a couple of years. For a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, the, the challenge is just that. I mean, you said it well. Partly a cold start, but it's a restart as well. And with my joining the organization as executive director a number of months ago, it became clear over the first few months I was here that the ship was still hidden. It's here very visible in Jack London Square, but front it's, hid- row center, it's hidden. It's yeah, front it's, row. You get off that ferry boat, and it's right in front of you. Yeah, and there's the, there's the ferry. I speak ferry yeah. coming in. As we speak, you can hear it. <laughs> what I decided would be a good thing to do was if we can't get enough people in as we've reopened to the ferry, let me go out and speak to people about the ferry. I'll take the ferry, to, I mean, I'll take the, the ship to them. Right. So I started going out and speaking to various organizations, rotary clubs, retirement homes, and so on, of people I know that might have an interest in the ship. And I'll then present to them some stories of the ship, the tale of Elvis Presley helping the ship in his day, and then I'll talk a little bit about my grandparents, and then I make a real hard pitch, come to see the ship. That's because right. once they do, it changes a lot. Let's roll back in time, because okay. it's fascinating journey of how the vessel got from FDR's presidential okay. yacht to mm-hmm. here. And you alluded to Elvis yeah, Presley. Presley, amongst yeah. others. Well, when FDR mostly stopped using the ship when World War II started, because he needed to be attending to duties as commander-in-chief. And I think he was on the ship a few times. I know one of the things he did on the ship was to take this ship north to Newfoundland area and out into the water, telling the reporters who were following him I'm going fishing, boys. I'll be back soon. And the ship went out into the fog, and the Secret Service ships, little small boats that were following this ship, kept them away as he disappeared in the fog. And they took him out deeper into the deeper Atlantic, and he was transferred to a U.S. battleship. And that battleship took him even further out to meet Winston Churchill on a British battleship. And was it installed in there? Too? Not yet. Not yet. That okay. was when they found they set up to start the Atlantic Charter. And that was the plan for that one. So, mm-hmm. Because he wanted to meet with Churchill and have that conversation. And then after four days on that ship, they brought him back two other ships to get to the Potomac. But nobody knew where he was. They had a Secret Service person sitting maybe where we are in clothes that FDR might have worn, waving at the reporters from the distance, holding a cigarette in his mouth the way FDR would do. And they completely fooled the reporters. FDR even wrote to his mother and said, I'm going fishing for a while. And Eleanor didn't even know. Wow. They had to keep it top secret. They couldn't do that today. No, they couldn't do that today. So after so, he was president, the ship sort of languished a little bit, and Harry Truman did not want it. So he sort of turned it back over to the Coast Guard that used it for inspecting fishing vessels up and down the coast of Maryland and, and so didn't on. Didn't it go down to the Caribbean for a while? It, eventually it made, it, it made its way to the Caribbean. Some yeah. people bought it down there to have it be essentially a party boat, mm-hmm. to take it down there, and it, they didn't want it, essentially. So it somehow, I don't know the exact details, it made its way to California. And in California, it was owned by some people who were smuggling drugs. And they were doing the smuggling on a larger ship that was docked next to the Potomac at Treasure Island. And the Coast Guard impounded both of the ships. Well, said, wait, back up for a moment, because okay. there's Elvis Presley and Danny Thomas. Uh, yes. At what point were they? Danny Thomas contacted Elvis Presley, and Elvis Presley and the two of them talked. They came on board upstairs, and Elvis said, I'll buy the ship, and he did. And he said, I'll donate it to St. Jude so they can auction it off. And 
Danny Thomas said, well, <clears throat> we're not in the, in the boat business. We're in the medical business. So he didn't want it. So the ship then went to auction and ended up at the Port of Oakland. At some point, there was a bunch of volunteers that raised it out on Treasure Island, towed it to well, Stockton. Stockton. So on Treasure Island, my uncle James Roosevelt, my dad's brother, raised money from President Reagan to put money in the federal budget to start the repairs. Reagan gave $3 million, then up to four, allowing for the private donors to match it. So once they had the $8 million plus match, they wanted to start the repairs, and they started the capital campaign to raise a lot more money. And then they got the ship towed to Stockton. It, went on, it actually went on a, a, a large truck to get it shipped up there, essentially. And they took it up to Stockton to the naval yards, and union workers repaired the ship, got it back to seaworthiness. It took a number of years, and I think it finally launched again, repaired in 1991 or 92. And it's and been, been here it's since. It's been here ever since. In your restart of the cruises and whatnot, have you thought or meditated about doing like a special cruise departing from, say, the ferry terminal over in San Francisco? We actually do some of those. We oh, have a do. couple of charters that are okay. coming up. One of them is going to be a very interesting charter. One of our board members is a member of the Episcopal Church over in Tiburon, Belvedere. And he wants to commemorate with this, with the congregations that between that church and the one in Sausalito, the founding of the church in Tiburon. So they've chartered the ship, and they're going to follow a person in a rowboat from Sausalito to Belvedere in the water, filled with congregates on the ship, wow. watching them. So they have to dock at Sausalito, which you can't normally do uh-huh. because the ferry's there. So we had to squeeze in between the ferry do- dock- docking and departing to get this ship into that terminal. But we do that. The other one we want to do that I really want to do, I want to be on the, sh- on the cruise when we go over and we anchor or dock sort of at the uh, ballpark, the Giants. That would be cool. That one would be cool. I want it. I'm yeah. a Giants fan, so I want For to be a game. There. For yeah. a game. I yeah. doubt if I can you be can on the a, upper deck and get a ball. get a fly ball. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't think we get that close. But, yeah, you'd have to really hammer it. We need Barry Bonds to well, do that. that. And that's great PR, man. I know. You'd be on TV National TV. cameras. Yeah. You, I think when we've done this, it now and then is seen when they they flash the camera now and then of Covey Cove and they show the kayakers out there looking for the ball. Right. If right. it's a big ship, they always get that. Yeah. When, again, FDR's presidential yacht. is right outside how, the ballpark. I how know. cool is that? So we're, that's stuff we have to work on. The ship can go out. It can dock at Sausalito, can dock at the terminal over there. Mm-hmm. We did a catering cruise for Ghirardelli Chocolate employees, uh-huh. a whole bunch of their staff, and we picked them up over in, over in San Francisco. Went around the bay and dropped them off again. Like Pier 39 I think around there? Pier 39, yeah. I was yeah. not on that cruise. But it does go to different docks. We have to get special permission because mm-hmm. you, when you walk around, you see where the ramps are to get on and off. Yeah. It has to be able to fit next to that dock and the height and the tide. Mm-hmm. It's all up to the captain if That's we can do really it. That's cool. Okay, back here to mm-hmm. Jack London Square, Oakland, California. This is its home birth. This is our birth. Yeah. Our home birth. So how does somebody find out mm-hmm. about so you find out about the ship by a number of ways you can do it. If you are Googling or yelping, what can I do on the San Francisco Bay? I want to go on a cruise. Mm-hmm. We'll come up. We may not be at the top. We have to get some search engine optimization mm-hmm. going. Once that happens, you'll see the USS Potomac. And then you click on that. It will take you to our website, and it will list all the dates for the cruises, both the dockside tours, the two- and three-hour cruises you can buy tickets for. And you click on those, and it will take you out to Eventbrite to buy a ticket. We sort of shifted all of our ticket selling from the office where we had to have somebody staffing that all the time to an online presence, which has worked out really well. It's a much different way to do it. On a day-to-day basis, do you have a regular schedule when you're 
tied up to the shore here for somebody that wants to take a short Good tour. question. We have what are called dockside tours mm-hmm. every Saturday or Sunday. It could be either day, depending on what if there's a charter going out. But they're usually hour to hour and a half walking every inch of the ship with a couple of docents that will tell you all about the ship, the history of the ship. The docents at this point know a lot more about the ship than I do in terms of the fine details. And they give remarkable tours. You've You've been on those, so you know what they yeah. do. But we do dockside tours. We post all of that on our website, so you can click on there. I think a dockside tour is an hour plus, an hour and a half, is $10. And, again, a weekly schedule for a harbor cruise. Either Thursdays and Saturdays or Thursdays and Sundays are when you can go out for a two- or three-hour ticket cruise. Right. And might that grow? In we hope. Uh-huh. We hope so. I mean, it's, the challenge is coming out of COVID is letting people know we're still here. A lot of people around this area know we're here. But getting the word out there, and what happens, I notice, like Fleet Week is coming up. Three out of the four days that the, that the Blue Angels are flying are tr- private charters. Uh-huh. They snapped it up two years ago yeah. in advance. Yeah. So the fourth one is a sort of a sale invitation, limited availability, and I think there's five left. Because mm-hmm. once the word got out, we've been besieged with phone calls. Because every ship in the bay is going to go out for the Blue Angels in hopes that the Blue Angels will buzz their ship. And this will be out there, too, so they'll buzz all the ships. That's but that's cool. a very popular cruise. Yeah. So a non-special event week, day, what would be the you know, the cheapest ticket somebody could buy? I'm thinking of a family. You know. Good question. We were talking about that this morning, and mm-hmm. I can't say for sure, but we're looking at ways to create packages for a family. Cause, you know, you like take a family package. Yeah, like a family package. Yeah. You go to Disneyland, it's $400 for a family. So we want to make a package available to save two adults and three kids under the age of 10 or whatever come on the ship, mm-hmm. we'll give you a family package, a very good deal. We just have to figure out how to market it, how to package it. So that's, that's coming very soon. We'll figure that out. But right now, if you go out for a two-hour cruise and you buy the ticket through Eventbrite, it's $75. And we know we're probably as reasonably priced. Train time. It's going to do it again. There's another group in the Bay Area called the Living New Deal. And they're a really great group of people out of UC Berkeley that are documenting new deal sites all over the Bay Area. They've got them already documented and mapped in Washington, D.C., in New York City, in San Francisco, and they're moving to L.A. next to map out that one. So I asked one of the guys who I've gotten to be good friends with yet so far, how many new deal sites do you think there are in the country that you know about, that you can document? He said, roughly 25,000 we've found. Oh, wow. And I said, how many do you think there really are? For real, CCC, the WPA, all the... He said, roughly 300,000. I believe it. All over the country. So anywhere you go... In any state in this country, you can find something by the WPA, the mm-hmm. Civilian Conservation Corps. They're everywhere. So what I want to do is propose a tour with the people from that organization, which is based here, around the bay, pointing out new deal sites all around the bay. So when you're going under the Bay Bridge, the old part, that's new deal. A lot of opportunities to create collaborations, partnerships with people that know mm-hmm. a lot about what's here. Right. And this would be the way to see it. And my name is Ford Roosevelt. Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt are my grandparents. Thank you, Ford. What a wonderful day. This Thank is you. great. It's a great day. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Great. I'm your host, Tom Wilmer, reporting from the Port of Oakland at Jack London Square aboard FDR's presidential yacht. been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. 
Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org. Thank you.